Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who's experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve captain with the Rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who learned the importance of empathy and rapport in getting things done. I could pretty much ask them to do anything for me and they would because I got an insight into what most of you didn't see to see how they really are as people. And that, I think, is a key aspect of leadership, if you want. Just understanding who people are, first and foremost. You can get a lot of them by just knowing them as people. And who understands that good leadership requires making the most of your team. The people around you are there for a reason where, you know, everybody has something to offer. And understanding what everybody has to offer, maybe you don't see it at the time, but everybody has something to offer and take from people what they're willing to give. You can extract more from them where you need to, but everybody has something to offer. Sergeant Dorian John was born and raised in the Commonwealth of Dominica and enlisted into the Royal Corps of Signals in 2003 and served on Op Telic 5 in Iraq and Op Herrick 6 in Afghanistan. As a Lance Corporal, Dorian transferred to the Adjutant General's Corps Staff and Personnel Support Branch. That's the AGC SPS. He was attached to five rifles and served on Op Herrick 15 as a linguist with one of the seven languages that he speaks. As a sergeant, Dorian served in the Joint Casualty and Compassionate Centre in Headquarters British Forces Germany before moving to NATO's Allied Rapid Reaction Corps Support Battalion. He's now at Headquarters Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, that's the ARC, and was recently selected for promotion to Staff Sergeant. In this conversation, we explore the idea of leading through followership and leading without authority. We often look to those in positions of command and authority to change organisations, But Dorian demonstrates how followers can lead change and how self-leadership makes everything work better. Dorian became aware of leadership as distinct from command and management all the way back in basic training. Leadership for me is from being in the army. There's always people who highlighted certain things that I thought these are things you could take with you wherever you go in the army. From basic training, for example, my troop sergeant was just a great guy. He pushed us where he needed to. But he was always there to show us he was interested in us as people. And that's something that stuck with me for a very, very long time. He was always just listening to his people and always asking us questions while he was pushing us to get the maximum out of us all the time. And did you find, even as a, as a private, but then also as a Lance Corporal, that you started to embody some of those values of leadership yourself? Well, massively, massively. Whether I had people following me or just the tasks that I undertook, I always looked to make sure that I could give as much of myself as possible, you know, embodied what all the people taught me along the years. And just simple things like, you know, when I was in the logistics job in the signals or when I transferred as an SPS, always trying to make sure that the people around me got the best out of me. For example, being deployed in, in Iraq, for example, just working around a clothing store and just always making sure that people got the maximum what it is they were trying to get out of, out of that, where they were entitled to, of course. Just those things for me meant, meant a lot, looking after people, always about people. Yeah, and that's also critical, looking within the doctrine on leadership. It's understanding what the mission is and what the task is and what the team is and your place in that. And it's not always something about having 
command or authority, but it's within the position that you have. Can you lead yourself and lead your actions in order to get the team to work? Once you transferred over to the AGC SPS, you actually ended up going out with the rifles and Herrick 15. What was your role there? Uh, initially, I was a command clerk, which is where I worked with the staff assistant to the commander. And so is that giving them the policy and doctrine and support they need for discipline? And- in, in that first role, no, I was in a supporting role to the command team, so to speak. So I deployed with my CEO at the time was a battle group commander. So in that role, my job was to support the staff assistant as well as the other people within that team, making sure that they got what they needed or just administering what it is they were trying to do, be it allowances or just providing additional clerical or personnel support to the people who deployed out there. And then once you actually got out on deployment, you ended up going out with the command team for liaisons with key leaders in the local area. How did you end up in that role? One of my bosses at the time identified personnel within his detachment and that he could use for specific tasks. One of our guys was part of the intelligence group. The other one was doing patrols and I was selected to do language training. So as part of that, I learned Dari. And interestingly enough, we were deployed in, in southern Afghanistan. But at the same time, we were partnered with an Afghan battalion stationed with them in the same location. So there were a lot of opportunities there to liaise with them and talk to them every day. For example, when the CEO's interpreter was unavailable, I was asked to work with the XO to speak to his alternate number within the Afghans and just provide that additional support at that time. So again, that's enhancing what the team is able to do through enhancing your own abilities. And had you already been identified as being particularly good at languages early on? Did you speak any other languages before you started to do Dari? I I grew up bilingual. So in my home country, English is the first language, but we have French Creole, a dialect from French, so I've always had that, and I spoke Spanish as well. What did you learn from that process about the importance of language? So it's not just the fact that it literally enables you to do a task. Did it help you develop more empathy and insight in the environment you're operating in? Absolutely, because language is not just about the things that you say. Language teaches a lot about culture. If you understand somebody's culture, you know, you know for example, in my time, when, even when I wasn't working, I ate with the Afghans quite a lot. So I ate their food, sat down and watched TV, for example, with them in, the, in, the, in their tents. So I got a bit more of not just the language that is spoken, but how they behave. So it mattered a lot more when I spoke to them, where I could get a lot more from them than just speaking to them. So just doing that in itself taught me a lot how to get on with them. I could pretty much ask them to do anything for me, and they would, because I got an insight into what most of you didn't see to see how they really are as people. And that, I think, is a key aspect of leadership. Just understanding who people are, first and foremost. You can get a lot of them by just knowing them as people. And also, I imagine that must have created a new capability within that battle group in terms of you've developed a new bond or closer relationship with the partner force that must have just made other things easier. It was really, really comfortable speaking to them. You know, for example, I got introduced to the imam, for example. I could go and sit with him and just have a chat about, about stuff, see how his guys get on asking us about us. And it was sometimes interesting getting their perspective on how we are because we had women deployed with us as well. Even simple things like we had an incident once. One of our guys had a, a, a towel. He was going to the showers. He had a towel, but it had an Afghan flag on it. So we thought we were in Afghanistan. It's all good. He's having an Afghan flag. But interestingly enough, Afghanistan, the name of the country is written on the flag and it's got 
Allah written on it as well. And that was not okay for the Afghans. So there was a big hoo-ha about it. But nobody really understood what was going on. So then I was called to explain to them what the issue was. And then I could take that towel. And they said I could handle the towel because I'm Muslim myself. And to deal with them and just to diffuse the situation and said if there's a problem, they can just go speak to me. And so for both sides, we all soldiers, but just a cultural difference that divide and I was able to bridge that gap. It was good just to be able to do that and be in that position to be able to do that. And you promoted to corporal after that tour, but you stayed with the rifles as a corporal in the AGC SPS. I did, yeah. What was that experience like and what kind of examples of leadership around you did you start to see there when you're now in a inner chain of command? We have a commander giving you information and orders and then you have people that are delivering on your behalf as well. What was that experience like and what examples did you take from those above and below you? So first and foremost, being SPS, there's the stigma attached to being SPS. You know, people think you're Clark or those are the broken people who... But then at the time at which I, I transferred into the SPS, they were trying to get rid of that. And we had this soldier first ethos. And I think that is still present today. So for me personally, one who values fitness, I always try to make sure that anybody working with me, especially junior SPS soldiers, because we are hardly by ourselves, we always work in support of the battalions. Working with rifles, for example, I always told the guys working with me or around me that if you're on PT, you make sure that you give it your best. You're at the front. If you're struggling, try to get there push yourself to make sure that they know just the value that we add. We're not just the clerk doing the administration. We're on par with you in terms of what needs to do physically. We're there as much as you are. Because the CEO at the time said to us, everybody here with us is an honorary rifleman. And I still believe that today. So strangely enough, I still have a big affinity to the rifles because of my time with the rifles back then. By conducting yourselves in this way, by pushing yourself in PT, by trying to bind to that rifle's ethos, did that make other things easier for you to do your day-to-day clerking work? Absolutely. So the commanders at the time, one of this company commander, knew of the level of input that we did on PT, for example. If I, if I was doing anything on PT, you know, he knew what we were doing, so he would make sure that he supported me in whatever way I needed. If I needed to close for an afternoon, or to do whatever I need to do, he was happy to support that in any way. So whatever tools we need to do our job, he supported us where he could to make sure that we could deliver for his company. Were you also able to develop empowerment in the soldiers that you looked after, but also through the wider battalion by using administrative tasks as a tool to get that done? Yeah, so during my time with the rifles, for example, when we first got there, simple tasks such as, you know, just a leave application, guys wanted to go away for a couple of days was always passed down to administrators, you know, the idea of soldiers administering themselves, you know, the idea of JPA, Joint Personal Administration, the J is often forgotten. But at that time, Ario at the time tried to highlight it and, and empower us to make people do most of the things themselves. You know, individual officers and soldiers had to do more of their things themselves to manage themselves and left us to do more of the administrative tasks that were more relevant to what we were there for so they could help themselves. But your skill sets were used for things that were more complicated. Did that have an additional impact on the soldiers as well? They just became a bit more organised and took more responsibility? It wasn't easy at first, you know, but more and more we saw that people, you know, took a bit more of their personal administration within barracks because we always think of, especially with an infantry battalion, people think of them having to do all these infantry type tasks. But within the barracks, there's a lot of administration that is required to make sure you can deploy. And those tasks were pushed more and more to soldiers, you know, simple things like making sure that their next of kin details were up to date. 
you know, this, the, the area would just pick up his phone and just call somebody just to make sure that the details were correct. And he's just making sure that we were there to tell people that, you know, these things need to be done. And then push it to make sure that people knew their responsibilities to themselves and to us as administrators. This is a really good example of pushing an organisation and leading from behind in terms of supporting it. Whereas you don't have the command position of being at the front of the infantry battalion, this is what we're going to do, this is how we do it. You're enabling it to happen, but you're also putting things into place that mean that it all happens more smoothly. Absolutely. When you became a sergeant, you then had a very responsible role. We were responsible for looking after anybody that was assigned to Northwest Europe. So basically, we were responsible for mainly, of course, Germany. So all British forces in Germany, including visiting forces, as well as guys in France, Holland, Belgium. So all of those people were responsible for in terms of administering or looking after casualty or compassionate issues. And what did the work actually involve? could be something as simple as uh, registering the birth of a child born in one of those countries. But more on the compassionate side, anybody who was uh, a teacher, a, a UK-based civilian in Germany, a parent is, is sick or a child dies or something, or some, there's some, a compassionate issue in the UK, we were responsible to make sure that they got back to their families in good time to support them in whatever way that we could to get them back to, to the UK. At the same time, that could also mean somebody who was admitted to hospital in Germany and, you know, there was a case of we need to notify families or we need to put things in place to administer or to look after that person while they're in hospital. So I liaise quite often with the liaison team in the hospital to make sure that, the you know, the families were notified if they weren't already. Or language support, because we're in Germany, not everybody could speak German. So Had you chosen to learn German as well by this point? I love languages. So I learned German from the time I got to Germany. I, that's one of the first things I wanted to do was to get to learn German. And I, I did as well. So I was able to provide that additional support. You know, we've been able to speak to the liaison team or the medical team to get information to families. I mean, this is a hugely important, but also hugely impactful job because most people never have to deal with the casualty and compassion self. Hopefully they get through their entire career without having to deal with it. But when they do, it's the most important thing that can happen. So what was that like for you having that responsibility really every day and how, how did you think about or, or recognizing its impact on on the people you were working for so nothing really prepares you for that job so when you get the first incident when you hear that something has happened and or you get a phone call it might just be you in the, in the office responding to emails you get a call something has happened for example i had one call where i got a call from a jccc in the in the uk asking me to provide some liaison with a, a family that they couldn't really speak to. A German person had rang the JCCC asking for support because a child was sick or wasn't well. So I got the number and rang the person on the phone. On the other end of the phone was a lady saying that her son had just died. And she was in the emergency services, the child is in her hands, and saying, can you get my husband back home, please? And just dealing with that and go through the whole process to explain to her what we were doing and to get her husband back and to find out literally like just after I hung up the phone that I knew the person that she's talking about. I knew the husband. We served together years before in the signals. And to call him to say to him, right mate, your flight is getting sorted. You're on the way. We're getting you home, your wife. And to, to tell the wife as well, your husband is on his way to you. We just got him on, on, on his way. And that was... That picture stays with me for a very, very long time. It hasn't, 
still there. And it was your responsibility to inform him that his childhood? No, I didn't tell him that his childhood died, no. I just said to him that he's on his way, you know, because I couldn't tell him that on the phone. You, you wouldn't do that. But I you know to say to him that, you know, your flight is sorted, or to tell her that he's on his way. She was my concern at the time to say to her that her husband is on way to support her. Wow. Like, those are life-changing days for everybody involved. And the way you deal and engage with it is going to have a huge impact on them from then on. And that's a huge responsibility. How did you cope with that sort of thing yourself? So that's the interesting thing about it. For, for jobs like this, it's always finding an avenue outside of, you know, everybody needs to be able to offload somewhere. I was fortunate that I've got a queen at home that I could speak to about anything that, you know, is good or bad in my, in, in my career. So my wife is always around to support me in whatever way she could. Just listening to me rant or just allowing me to vent or just providing, you know, little cues to say, hey, it's okay. You can do this. You can do that. So her being there is always a big support for me. From that experience, what lessons did you take on to your next role, which was as supporting the administration of a support battalion to the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, which is a NATO organisation based in Gloucestershire? From HQBFG, I went to the, the ARC, Allied Rapid Reaction Corps in Gloucester, as a staff support assistant, SSA, to the CEO there, or to the battalion, who provided the administrative support to the ARC itself. We were called ARC Support Battalion. Uh, there, my role as SSA was to be there to provide uh, discipline support, administration guidance when necessary to the commanding officer and the adjutant. How does that help a commanding officer and an adjutant? Because you would presume that they would be able to make disciplinary decisions in order to get their battalion functioning as they want it. What extra knowledge, skill, and expertise does having an SSA in a sergeant's role? What capability does it give them? So an SSA can be twofold, from my view anyway. So an SSA can be a link between the soldiers. So people can come and see the SSA. You know, soldiers can come and see the SSA with certain things, certain issues in terms of um, discipline or questions with, with regards to discipline or service complaints. SSA is also there as a, a guide for the CO. The CO is a busy person. So if somebody falls foul of, of a guideline or regulation in one way, shape or form, the CO is empowered to do certain things to correct that wrong, or not just the CO, anybody within that, that unit. And it's the SSA's job to make sure that that is done in the correct manner so that, again, we are compliant with the Army regulations and also within law. So the SSA's primary task is to make sure that all of that stuff is administered properly, that everything is above board, and that the CO and everybody else is compliant legally within their responsibilities. Does it also mean that sometimes you can generate suggestions that they may have missed that could solve a problem in a way that they otherwise might not have thought about? So a key aspect of that role is always telling the CEO of where your left of arc and your right of arcs are. These are the things that you can do and have you considered this? Or perhaps we should get legal advice on this because this might be a tricky situation here. So it's just understanding you know, what the implications are for every decision that you could take that, you know, more tools to use for that task. Are there any examples that you're able to give that can show how that works in practice? One soldier had been away for quite a while 
and the circumstances were not normal and they were considering posting him AWOL. I had to highlight the fact to them that yes, he might have gone home for quite a while, but this was COVID and he was in a different country, also originally from a different country. Uh, although I was told to post him AWOL, when I, when I did start the process, I had to speak to the legal team to ask the questions. You know, this is a tricky situation. What you're doing would probably open you to litigation. So I had to highlight that fact to the CEO to say, uh, there is a problem, this is not standard, and these are the things that you need to consider. So him knowing that he was grateful for the fact that, that his intent would, would not have been met with what he was going to do. And being able to tell him that, he was grateful for the fact that he was told that perhaps he shouldn't be doing what he thought it was the best thing. And did you have a, a team that you had to look after whilst you were doing this job in the ARC? And how did you maintain and develop a sense of team spirit there? Esprit de Corps is an important part of being in the army. You know, I'm originally from the Caribbean, and I think that Caribbean offers a lot of opportunities for the army to do sport and adventurous training, for example. So most recently, I got involved with a team trying to do adventurous training overseas. That didn't work out the way that it was supposed to happen. So I took it on myself to try to do the same with HQ Arc and try to deploy a team of personnel to do adventurous training in the Caribbean. And I decided to go to my island, Dominica, one of the most mountainous islands in the Caribbean, you know, with uh, trails over 300 miles of trails on a small island. And I decided to take a team down there to do that, and I got the support to do that. What did you have to do for that? Because it sounds a bit like planning an exercise. I mean, it is planning an exercise, it's an AT exercise. But was that something you had much experience of doing up until this point? No, I'd never done it before. I just got support from my AT officer, gave me some pointers as to what I should be looking for, because he's the guru when it comes to AT. So he gave me the advice that I needed to get things rolling. And I learned a lot by doing what I was doing, just more and more, the more you got into it, the more you found out. And uh, first and foremost, I had to sell the idea to a panel uh, headed by a one star, a brigadier, to say to him, right, this is what I want to do. This is what are the effect I'm trying to have. What was that experience like of having to stand up in front of a one star and be tested on your plan? I presume it was a bit like having a set of orders being taken apart and just checking that everything had been done. In the first instance, just to get the idea going, to sell it to the panel, that was the first bit where I had to put it in front of the brigadier. And the second bit was to get the medical risk assessment signed off, to critique every aspect of it. You know, just I had to do a presentation to show him where we were going, what the medical support was like, the fact that we were using host nation medical support. He needed to understand and he needed to be clear in his mind that that was viable. And I had to just show it to him and sell it to him. And it was testing, but I got the de desired effect. And did you then lead this expedition out there? And what was it like leading this team? Was it a team where everyone was a, a lower rank than you or was it a mixed rank organisation? And, and what kind of leadership challenges did that throw up for you? The whole exercise in itself, the ATA exercise of the Caribbean was a very challenging one. The planning process itself was a very long process. It's, most people do AT, but don't understand what it takes to get you out on AT. We had ranks from Lance Corporal all the way to, to Major. We had a Major who was one of our mountain leaders and a Major who was one of the participants of the exercise. But ultimately, the responsibility was mine because I was the expert leader. So that in itself was, you know, just making sure that I got buy-in from all people, from all ranks. And did it all go fine? God, no. It, it didn't all go fine. You know what? In hindsight, it, it went fine because we got the desired effect. You know, the guys were challenged every single day. 
But when we had uh, one of the biggest challenges for me personally was when I had when I had one person, I, I had a serious injury. And after that serious injury, the person was hospitalized. And because I had knowledge of the local area, I decided to pass on my leadership of the group to a different soldier and to take on a different challenge of managing that casualty to make sure that he was looked after in hospital. And I was to do liaison back with the UK because we were in the Caribbean with a different time zone and to make sure that everybody's kept abreast with what was going on, providing support for him where he was, his family was notified and to make sure that he could get back home to his family in one piece. That in itself was a, a big challenge, a big ask, which I didn't expect to happen the way that it did. But ultimately, I got the support of people around me, you know, asking me the right questions if they thought they weren't sure if I was asking the right questions, but gave me enough probing questions so that I could, you know, extract the right information to pass on. So the rest of the team that were supporting the expedition, they would be asking you questions to help you make sure you've done everything you need to, rather than trying to pull it apart, much like when you had to go through the testing process for the Brigadier, except now it was live for something that you had to check for the safety of the participant who was in the hospital. The one major who was with us, you know, I initially had discussions with him saying, you know, if there was if something went wrong in terms of, I had one warrant officer, one major. So I said to them initially, you know, I'd like to, one of you to be like my sergeant major in case there was a discipline issue. And you as, you know, if something were to happen, you know, you provided that sort of overarching support. And he did that, you know, he was there at, at this stage of the incident just afterwards when he was doing the management of it. He came in to say to me, right, I'm just protocoling, you know, recording everything that is happening. So if we, we need to, then you could just, have you considered this? Have you considered that? But the biggest part of it was that he still left me to deal with, to do my job as the expedition leader. So knowing that he could provide the support that I needed, but it ultimately it was incumbent on me to make sure that everything happened the way it should. And ultimately incumbent on you to make all the decisions. They yes. could give you the questions and give you the support but you were the one that had to make the decisions in that case. Absolutely. What lessons did you take from that now you're using day-to-day -day in your work? Have you found any of that experience useful? So first of all, you need to trust your team. The people around you are there for a reason where, you know, everybody has something to offer. And understanding what everybody has to offer, maybe you don't see it at the time, but everybody has something to offer and take from people what they're willing to give. You can extract more from them where you need to, but everybody has something to offer. And at the time when I had to give the command of that part of the exercise to somebody else, you know, he, he was a junior soldier as well, but giving that to him to take on. So trusting him to do that was a big thing for me. So it provided, you know, more space for me to do other things. So absolutely, trusting your team is a big part of, of that. And I'd say as well, um, knowing your people is important. You're not just trusting them, but you can trust people, but you can't necessarily trust them blindly. So you need to know who you're working with. I think regardless of rank, and we're in a hierarchical organization, but I don't think rank is the most important part. I think rank is one of the least important aspects of what we do. I think knowing the people that we work with, and I think talking to people on a personal level is more important than anything else. Because from that, just knowing who you are. So one soldier has a sick dog or a baby who's just born or mom is not well or anything. Just knowing who they are what highlights they have in their lives or what lows they have are, are perhaps the most important things you can know about them so you know how to push them and how to extract the most from them. Torin, it's been really great to hear about how your concepts of leadership started very early in your military career and how even when you haven't had authority 
or you haven't had command, you've taken aspects of leadership and used them to develop yourself as well as your peers and then help the organisations you're attached to work that much more effectively. I think there's a lot of great lessons within there that I'll summarise at the end. On each episode, we like to have three quickfire questions. What is your perfect way to relax? I play basketball. I, and it perhaps it's not relaxing for most people, but I play basketball. So even if it's by myself or with people, I play basketball. That's my way to have fun. That's my way to relax. I think that's also something quite meditative about dribbling a ball in basketball. Just dribbling and shooting around. I love that. That's what I love to do. Are there any books, films, podcasts that you draw leadership lessons from? I, I love this podcast. It's, uh, what's it called? Rest is Politics. I love that podcast. It talks about so many things that, is, that interest me as a person. And one of the self was in the military. He was a politician and was in the military. So he has a, a, lot, a lot of insights about his time and what he's doing now. So I yeah. find that very, very interesting, that, that podcast. And what would you say to Lance Corporal John now that you know about leadership that you think he should know? Trust your gut. Ask, keep asking those questions. Not everybody wants to hear those questions, but, you know, don't be scared of a challenge. You know, it's, it's important to challenge, you know. I, I like to be challenged personally. Even if I think I know something, if you, if you make me have to read something, I think I'm better off for getting that extra knowledge. So ask questions. And asking questions is not, is, not, is not a negative thing. A lot of people take it that way, but it isn't. If you're not sure or you think you want to probe somebody, ask a question. Sergeant Dorian John, thank you very much. It's really insightful to hear Dorian talk about his different phases of leadership and how he took very early lessons from the people that he had around him and then discovered ways to implement them and take new insights from them. Whether that was enabling an organisation by using policy or doctrine or guidance, whether that was giving more responsibility and empowerment to junior soldiers so that they could lead themselves, whether it was adding value, whether that value was empathic and compassionate, like his time when he was working at British Forces Germany, or when he then went on to having to take a direct leadership role when he was leading AT and considering how he's going to manage things when things don't go as you'd expect them to. It's also a good example of how leadership without authority is something that we need to encourage. This was an episode of The Human Advantage from the Centre for Army Leadership. It was produced and presented by Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy and co-produced by Lucy Ditchment of Feast Collective. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the UK Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.